The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 44. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in this talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they bought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, and leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. As wife, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let me pray for you, Matt. 
Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word and that we have in your word the words of, the words of life, the words that are true, and the words that shed light on who you are. So, Lord, bless the preaching of your word today. Be with Matt as he preaches to us. Uh, may we hear your words, Holy Spirit. And, Father, encourage and edify us and challenge us, Lord, as we are taught by your word. Amen. Yes, well, like Jimmy mentioned, uh, the, my name's Matt, if you haven't met me yet, it's good to be here. The last time I got to be at LCC Caloundra, or as I like to call it, LCCC, uh, was when you were in your previous building, having just started in the, what was it, some sort of council community hall, and now you're in this glorious community hall. This is probably my most, this is the loveliest room I've ever been in, I really enjoy it, yeah. Um, Look, it's uh, exciting to, to be with you. The family didn't come because kids in a car for an hour and then back again, no deal. Um, but they send you their, their well wishes as well. Uh, look, we're in Mark chapter 12, as, as Jimmy has mentioned, and whilst we kind of get ready to hear what the Lord has to say to us through that, I think one of the things that obviously brings to mind for us is this, this question, this problem, I suppose, is another way to say that. Have, have you noticed that we as a species, as the human race, have an issue with sincerity. S sincerity doesn't kind of work the way that it should work at all times. It's, it, is, there, it is common for us to, to fall into the trap of, of worrying more about how we are perceived than worrying about how we really are. Like, it, it, it's easier uh, to appear kind than to be kind, right? It, 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 is, it is easier to appear moral than to be moral. I mean, and if anything, in our present moment, Hasn't social media just like fanned into flames this problem where we, uh, we all take the best things of ourselves and only the photographs where we look great, but like mm, double chin and that one delete. And, and then we just put this fake version of ourselves out there for the world to see as if it's the, the real us. Um, and and uh, I think it's not, it's not a big stretch to say that uh, some of the problems that people have these days with dissatisfaction or depression or anxiety stem from this thing where we, we compare our lives, our real lives, where we know the whole thing. We know the flaws, we know the warts, we know the, the strengths and the weaknesses of our own lives, but we compare them to these fake pretend versions of other people that we, that we uh, are allowed to see and think something's wrong with my life because their life seems so much more perfect than mine. Living near the beach, you just, you just have extra opportunity, right? Like, if, if you thought it's hard to gather a crowd in the city, like, I don't, I don't have to compete with water. Right? I have to compete with traffic. Sitting in church is way more pleasant than traffic. That's all there is in the city other than, other than being at home. Um, here we have Mark's Gospel, which you've been, you've been moving through for a long time. And uh, Jimmy sent me some notes which shows me how it is that you've been, been learning from this, this book of the Bible. You're looking to encounter the real Jesus. You, you, you're looking to encounter Jesus as he actually is. Not the, not the Jesus of our imaginations, not the Jesus of culture or tradition or assumption, but Jesus as Jesus presented himself. And in there, we're going to find some things that are confronting. We're going to find some things that are encouraging. We're going to find some things that are surprising. But this is the guy. This is the God who made us. We would like to get to know him as he really is. And at this stage in Mark's gospel, what, what the author of this book is doing is he is showing us the public teaching ministry of Jesus. Um, if, his, if, if Jesus' public ministry went for three years, you know, from the, from the time when um, John baptized him to the time he was crucified, roughly three years, um, if, that's, if that's how that worked, then most of that time was spent as a traveling preacher. 
This is, this is what Jesus did. Uh, and most of that three years wasn't just spent as a, as a traveling preacher, but it was spent preaching off in the, off in the boondocks, like off in the north, uh, in, in the region of Nazareth and, and Galilee, where, um, which were largely out of the spotlight. And, and yet somehow there was something in his teaching which was so captivating, so powerful, so relevant, so helpful, that the crowds were coming. There was, the, the miracles helped as well, certainly. Um, but the crowds were coming to hear what he has to say. Uh, what we see in today's passage is an interesting thing which happened when Jesus began to preach publicly. And there's kind of two ways we could have done this, right? Like, two or three ways. Like, as, a, as a church, you could have just gone into low gear and gone slow, and you could spend two months making your way through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, um, because each one of those little sort of scenes that we see in this chapter of the Bible is worthy of our attention. That would be a valid way to do this, but that's not what we're doing today. Um, what we are doing today is we're going to do the whole lot in one go because it appears that when Mark strung all these stories together, we're meant to compare them to each other. There is some lesson to be learned, something to be seen by doing all of these at once, which we would miss out on if we did them one at a time. And so it is worth going through quickly. What it does mean, though, is the risk of me going too long is quite high. And so my job today is to make sure that I use your time well, and your job today is to pretend that I succeed. Okay? And we're going to do that together. There's, there's two bits of, I think, cultural information, cultural background that we need to know that makes these kind of clashes make sense. Um, the first is this. Um, in, the, in the time, in the, the region that Jesus was ministering in, um, there was a common, almost universal, expectation that God was going to be sending his Messiah soon. The, the people believed this. The people of Israel had their Old Testaments. They had the, the promises from the prophets. They knew that God was sending his anointed to rescue them at some point, and they had been waiting for this Messiah to come for a very long time. They were correct to believe that the Messiah was coming, even if they were incorrect in all of the details of their expectations of what the Messiah was going to do. Some expected a, an, an earthly king to sit on the throne of David and to, to rule the nation of Israel the way that David had ruled the nation of Israel. Um, God knew better, but they were right to expect him. They were, they were right to be waiting for him. And so kind of there was this cultural thing where uh, their, their eyes were open to the possibility that maybe someday soon Messiah was coming and he was going to rescue us, deliver us, maybe from the Romans, maybe from what, what he's certainly going to do is he's going to establish God's kingdom among us. And we're really excited about that. Um, the second thing that we need to understand uh, was that the leadership of the nation of Israel had grown corrupt. Speaking of the problem of insincerity, they had it. God had established this nation. God himself had led the people of Israel out from the house of slavery, out from the land of Egypt, and established them in the land and preserved them there for such a long time. They'd been exiled for a period of time through their disobedience, and they'd been brought back into the land. And now, even though they're under the, the, kind of the rule of the Romans and whoever else came before them, here they are, still kicking. Um, the nation that God himself created, his own chosen people, his special people, um, and they're being led by people who, in public, give lip service to service to God, but their hearts are far from God. And we know this because the leaders of Israel will eventually kill their own God when they crucify Jesus. 
there, there, is, there is something amok in the, in the leadership. The, the moral, spiritual life of this nation is being governed by groups of people which are dominated not by the sincere, but by the insincere. Jesus has lots of kind things to say to them. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Isn't that a compliment? We, we, did, it. we did an Alpha course recently where um, we had a bunch of people coming along who'd never been to church, and they started reading the Bible for themselves, and we always send them to the Gospels first. And I was talking to this um, one girl. She's a philosophy student doing a, a PhD in the city. Um, and she came to us to talk about what she'd been reading. And she said, Jesus is sassy. That's what she says. Jesus is sassy. And he's, he's got some bite to him. It's like whitewashed. That's like harsh. <laughs> this, is, this was not the Jesus that she expected to encounter. What do you do? Like, imagine just for a second that you aren't one of the leaders of Israel, but that you're one of the people living during this time. You're waiting for Messiah. Uh, and the people leading you, even though they're corrupt, even though they're insincere, even though they're harsh and hard and callous, that's it. That's all you got. If, if, if you're at ask, you know, like, ask your auntie, who do I go to? I've got some questions about God. Where do I go? Auntie says, go talk to these people. They're the authority. They know what they're talking about. This is the, the established norm. This is, even though you might think that they're harsh or they're hard, you, you don't have any authority to question them. They, they're respected. They're, they're powerful. And if you oppose them, they have the ability to kick you out of the synagogue and have you socially shunned for the rest of your life. That's a rock and a hard place, isn't it? Which is why when, when Jesus arrives and begins to do the kind of teaching that, that he's doing, he is a breath of fresh air. I mean, th- th- there might be some of us here who've grown up, um, there's less and less of us as, as time goes on, but who've, who've grown up in an era of stern religious authoritarianism minus the grace and love of Jesus. And then when we encounter the gospel, when we encounter grace, when we encounter a church that's filled with love, it's like, oh, this is what it was meant to be the, the whole time. This was not the thing that I knew about exactly the same thing going on in the first century. And so Jesus has been preaching publicly. People are beginning to suspect this might be the Messiah. Let's go listen to him. But the religious leaders who he's contradicting and criticizing are like, who is this upstart? We didn't give him permission to do miracles. Like, we, like, how dare he criticize us? Does he not know who I am? I have worked very hard to get into this position. Does he not know who I'm related to? I am the son of. I studied under. Let's get him. And they begin to form a plan. And so plan number one to get Jesus wasn't, let's crucify him. Plan number one to get Jesus was, let's get our best and brightest, our best legal minds, the people who, who know the Bible the best and know the theological arguments of our day the best. And what we're going to do is while he is teaching publicly, so he's in a room like this with, with people listening to him, but there's a lot more people um, and they're a lot less well-dressed. Um, and then while that's happening, we'll ask him a question. But the questions that we'll ask will be the questions that will trap him and get him in trouble and make the people hate him. You know, it's, it's, it's the kind of the, the first century equivalent of when a journalist today decides that they really hate someone and want to get them. And so they ask them a whole bunch of leading questions with no right answer, right? And it's, it's like, I'm after, I'm after that sound bite and then I can take you down. Apparently, we don't change, right? So the first two scenes we get in Mark chapter 12 are, are, are two kind of thorny questions that they send him. And the first group of people, the leaders of Israel aren't just a single unified group. There's lots of various forms of them. The first group is the Pharisees come, some of the Herodians, uh, to trap him in his talk. Isn't that, that's a, that's a great phrase, isn't it? To trap him in his talk. And they start, they start wonderfully. They start, they get up, I've got a question. Oh, what's your question? Teacher, we know that you are true 
and you don't care about anyone's opinion. Neither fishing, right? Like the snakes. For you are not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Tell me, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? In case you haven't realized yet, it's a trap. Right? They're after a scalp. The problem, there's a problem with this question. There's no right answer. It's like, if, it's like if I was to ask Jimmy, Jimmy, when did you stop hitting your kids? There's no way he could answer that question that doesn't leave you all thinking, Jimmy used to hit his kids, right? Like, there's, it's, it's an insincere question. This is why. Um, because amongst the people who Jesus has now following him, the people who the, the Pharisees are jealous of, the idea that he would get up and say, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, you should honour the Romans as the, as the rightful rulers of Israel, that's, that's the unpopular answer. Like, if, if Jesus' ministry is, is moving on popularity, that's the popular vote gone. Right? However, if he was to say, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes to Caesar, then they can just walk down the street and report him to the local authorities, there's this bloke in this room over here is trying to start an insurrection. Go get him. It's a trap. There's no right answer. It's not a, do you feel it? It's not a sincere question. That they aren't in this room going, I wonder if this guy is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. What does he have to say? What does God have to teach me through this person? Is what he's saying in line with what we expect to see as we read the Moses and the prophets? It's a question designed to trap him so they can get rid of him and continue on being influential and powerful. Jesus is too good for them. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, hypocrisy is a great word, by the way. It's, it's, it's an old word that means, it's the old word for an actor. A hypocrite is an actor. You play acting. The, the, Greek, the, Greek, um, the Greek plays worked in a very specific way. An actor would play multiple roles in the same play, and they would just literally put a mask on, now I'm this person. I would take that mask off and put another mask on, now I'm this person. Isn't that a great word to describe what it is to be a pretender? You're wearing a mask. The real you is hiding behind, but all we see is your avatar. So Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, says to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and it's a coin, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, thank you, and ran. No, just kidding. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Like, which, which face is on the back of the coin? And they say, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, so render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him, because he did the impossible. He found the right answer. Two things to notice. One, Jesus being dishonestly tested is too good to be trapped. This is one of the things we fall in love with him as we read through the Gospels, isn't it? Like, I would love to have been in that room. Like, is that like a, is that like a, ooh, moment? Like, like, these jerks just got owned. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no contest. Jesus knows more than they know. He's right and they're wrong. It's not, it's not like we walked away from that room going, I wonder who, who got the better of that exchange. He's too good for them. But two, if we were to put the Pharisees to the same test they're putting Jesus to, do they pass? You feel that? If we question the questioner, what happens? We find them wanting. They couldn't have answered that question. What would have happened if Jesus had just done the, what do you say? Like what answer could the Pharisees have possibly given to their own impossible question? And they probably would have found some way to evade or to, to fling it back at him. It's an insincere question because the religious authorities just want him gone. Second scene, a 
separate group of people come to question him. This is the Sadducees. If you want to know who the Sadducees are, another religious group, their, their particular teaching was unique. They didn't believe that there was an afterlife, which is why they were Sadducee. <laughs> Never gets old. Right, yeah. And so they come to him, and they're, they're trying to get him in their, in their thing. Of course there's no resurrection, they think to themselves. It's a silly thing to believe in the resurrection. And they fire one of those, you know, have you been to that Bible study where someone asks, like, the impossible question just to, just to irritate everybody or because they're that person? Um, they fire one of those questions at him that's, that's been the debate between probably them and the Pharisees this whole time. It says, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, that the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is true. This is in, in the law of Moses. This is how God provides for widows in the Old Testament society. If you get married and, and husband dies before there are kids who can grow up and raise money and look after you, then his, his brother marries you to provide for you. This is, this, is a safe, this is the social safety net for vulnerable women. It's a beautiful part of God's law. But the Sadducees do a thing, which, which all of us do at some point or other in, in our sin, is that we take one part of God's law and we use it to contradict another part of God's teaching. If that's true, they say, well, let's suppose that there was a woman and she gets married to a brother and then he dies and then she marries his brother and then he dies and then she marries his brother and then he dies. And at which point do we start asking questions about this woman, by the way? I'm not, look, I'm not saying she's a gold digger. Um, she goes through seven of these men, all of whom leave her childless, and then she finally dies when the relatives get jack of her, presumably. Now there's a resurrection when they rise again. Whose wife will she be in the afterlife? Teacher? You, I mean, you seem to be suggesting there's an afterlife. She's been married to seven men. Which one is she married to? Do you, do you feel the impossible question? The thing is that Jesus is too good. He knows the answer. He knows the answer that no other human being on the planet knows because he knows exactly how the afterlife is going to work. He's the Lord of the afterlife. In fact, he's the Lord of this life too. He's the creator of all things. Everything obeys his will. They're talking to their own God. Jesus' answer. So good. Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry, nor are they given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. Uh, so at this point, big red herring, right? Turns out we're not going to be married in the afterlife, those of us who are married. We're going to be like the angels in heaven, and we're just left to kind of figure out what that means. Um, but one thing it means is that marriage is for now. Marriage is for this life only. Sounds like a bummer, doesn't it? If you like, if you like, if you like your spouse, it sounds like a bummer. Um, one of the things that's true about our God, though, is that heaven is too wonderful for us to imagine, right? So if, if marriage is for this life only, then whatever that means, that's, a, that's, a, that's an upgrade. Like, is, is it possible? Can you imagine? I can't even imagine it. That there is an intimacy of friendship which will exist in the kingdom of heaven, in, in, in our eternal home, which would be superior to the intimacy of marriage here on earth with the presence of sin. Full on. Love it. So he shows them up, and then he does it. He flips, he flips the, he, like, I'll just grab the camera and the microphone, thank you. Now we're, we're interviewing you, Sadducees. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You were quite wrong. 
oh, another one of those moments, right? Are you seeing the pattern here? Same as last time. They try to trap him. He's better than him. They, you turn the camera back on the questioner. They don't pass their own test. The questions are insincere. They aren't genuinely seeking. They aren't trying to find the answers to these questions. They aren't seeking to grow spiritually. They are playing games, and these are the leaders of Israel. These are the people that everybody looks up to. These are the the people preaching in synagogue on a Sunday. These are the people you go to with your problems. These are the people who are telling you how to follow the Lord God Almighty, and their opinions carry weight. Here they are standing in a room with their own God, and look how they treat him. Feel this tragedy with me. Like the Gospel of John says it so well. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world knew him not. He came to his own people, and they received him not. This was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. This was the answer to the questions incarnate. This was the person who fashioned them one hair on their head at a time. And the best thing that they could do with that opportunity to meet him was to parade around like a bunch of swolled up idiots. If these people have gone wrong, how many others are they taking with them? Like, it happens today, doesn't it, right? When a, when, a, when a church leader goes wrong, the damage that it can do. Jesus has all sorts of names for them. He calls them blind guides. Hot tip, if you need a guide, it's a bad hire. He, he, he calls them false shepherds and thieves. It, it, at one point, he says to them, guys, you are willing to travel cross-country to make a disciple, but the problem is that when you make a disciple, you turn him into twice the son of hell that you are. Read the woes to the Pharisees. There's a sniff of good news in the next scene. Because it turns out that not all of the scribes, not all of the Pharisees, not all of the leaders were equally mistaken. As we get to verse 28. So this is, the seat, we're still in the same room. The debate's still happening. The Sadducees have asked their question. Jesus has shut them down. And it says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, a light bulb goes on. Oh. What if this guy knows what he's talking about? I, like, I might have an opportunity here to ask a real question. And he does seeing that he answered them well, asked him a sincere question. Which commandment is the most important commandment of all? A normal question in these days to be asked. An important question. Help us to understand which things in my Bible are the most important to God. A good question. And so Jesus gives it a good answer. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It's from Exodus. And the second commandment is this. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In another gospel, it gets summarized as because in these two commandments, the entire law is summarized. 
Love God, rule one. Love your neighbour as yourself, rule two. In that order. Get, get those out of whack, everything, everything falls apart. Get those two in the right place. Genuinely love the Lord your God. Worship him the way that he's told you to worship him. Honour him the way that he's told you to honour him. And then get on and go and love the people who he's made in his image. That's the life that he has for his followers. So the scribe said to him, you were right, teacher. I kind of knew that one. You've said, truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. To love him with all the heart and all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Isn't he right? To obey is better than sacrifice. A moment of sincerity. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) We may meet this person. There were some amongst them who became Christians. We smell them every now and then. It's hard to tell sometimes who's, who's who. But, um, Nicodemus, he comes and asks God some sincere questions. He rocks up in John chapter 3, but he rocks up at the middle of night because he's embarrassed to be seen with Jesus because he knows what all his friends think. But every time he pops up sort of again and again, he's always, he's like this. This guy might actually be from God. We should actually give him a chance to prove himself. He's involved when Jesus is finally buried. Some of them were sincere. But what's the problem? The problem is, if you are genuine in a room full of powerful and not genuine people, how hard is it to stick your head up above the, above the wall and get noticed? It turns out that this sincerity is going to come at a, at a cost. Can you, like, can you imagine back at the Pharisee club after this is done, when he's t- hanging with his Pharisee mates eating Pharisee cakes, whatever, like, what do they eat? I don't know. And they're like, dude... You showed us up. Like, here we are trying to get this guy, and you're like being buddy-buddy with him. I'm going to shave your beard or something, whatever the Pharisees do to shame each other. There's a problem in the leaders. Can you see, like, scene after scene, there's a problem with the leaders. Uh, in the next scene, Jesus turns the spotlight on them all together, all as one, um, and points out their problem. Verse 35. It says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Which they do. They've read the Psalms. They know that the Christ is going to be a king in the line of David. This This is a promise that's been waiting to be fulfilled for a long time. It's the Davidic covenant. He says, the scribes say this, and yet when I read the Psalms, this is what David says in Psalm, I don't have the number off the top of my head. I'll get it wrong if I say it. I think it's 27, but I could be wrong. Um... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What a weird thing for the Old Testament to say in a song. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What he's saying is, if you read that long enough, what you realize is that David is seeing a a heavenly picture. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, hang on, I'm King David. Who does King David call my Lord? Have you ever wondered about the answer to that question, Pharisees? David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The answer to the question is, because whilst he is descended from the line of David, 
He is Lord over David. This is Jesus is the only person who could possibly be the fulfillment to this prophecy. And as Jesus is pointing out that they're, they're blind even to their own scriptures. It says that the throng, the great crowd, heard him gladly. Because his teaching is so much better than theirs. Like, this is, this is going to wax and wane across the course of his lifetime. The, the crowds will love him one minute and hate him the next. They're, we're a little bit fickle as, as a species, it turns out, as well. Uh, but this section ends with Jesus pointing out to us very, very directly who we should and shouldn't listen to when it comes to learning about God. First piece of advice, verse 38. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Don't trust them. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and they got the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts and they devour widows' houses for a pretense. Uh, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. When it's time for the justice of God to fully and finally be visited on the rebellious human race, their punishment in hell will be worse than the average. They claimed to be the leaders of God's people and they have used their time on this earth to prevent others from coming to God. Do not be fooled. God takes this very, very, very seriously. God's going to get them. Don't listen to them. Be wary of them. Keep away. Not good for your soul. Lesson number one. Lesson number two. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. He called his disciples and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. Do you feel the difference? She is a genuine worshipper. She is the example to follow of what sincere religion looks like. Not, not the impressive powers not, not the keynote speakers at the conferences. Not, not the, the people with the, the money and the prestige and the, the nice shoes and the... The sincere worshipper giving self-sacrificially from the motivation of faith. Like, I've thought about this one a lot. God loves a cheerful giver, right? Have you thought about that? God loves a cheerful giver. What on earth has cheerfulness got to do with it? So, suppose I, 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 like they're, they're collecting, and I don't know how you do the offering here, I haven't heard anything about it yet, it's probably at the back of the room and you're being subtle about it. But, suppose I've got $5,000 to bring to church today, I'm going to put it in that box, I'm going to send it electronically, however it all happens today. If I, as I hit send, as, I, as the envelope sort of descends into that wooden box, never to be retrieved by my hands again, if my heart is filled with gladness, and cheerfulness, this church is $5,000 the richer. Useful for God's service. And if my heart is filled with bitterness and regret and... 
This church is $5,000 richer, useful for God's service. Why does my cheerfulness matter? You know why? Because God doesn't need your money. We worship the Lord of heaven and earth. All things are his. There is not a, there is not a shiny brass razu on this earth which does not already belong to him. If he has a bill to pay, he can pay it. The cheerfulness is the point. I love the Lord my God and I love my neighbor as myself. That's why the cheerfulness matters. The motivation is everything. This widow is giving out of her lack. She has nothing to give. She's giving what she can and God is pleased. Like, what, what is her two, what's her penny going to do? Apparently it's going to buy two sparrows according to Jesus. Sincere faith has no substitute. It is the difference between an actual worshipper and a pretender. You can fool me. Do you understand? You can fool Jimmy. You cannot fool the Lord God Almighty. He knows your heart. And he wants your heart. And he wants your worship. And he is worthy of your worship. And he has sent his son to bleed and die and rise again and return to his side to secure your worship. We don't see it when we do them one at a time, do you see? But we hold it together, there's this obvious contrast to be made between the official leaders and the ones who should be leading. Here's a few applications for us this morning. Here's the first. What we see in Mark chapter 12 is a warning to be careful who you listen to and who you emulate. Who teaches you? Which, which podcasts are you absorbing? Which sermons are you watching online? Which church are you a part of? The answers to these questions matter. If, like, I'm looking around, you probably didn't join this church because of the impressive worship ministry with laser lights and smoke machines, right? So we've, we've dodged a bullet there. There's, a, there's an avenue of idolatry that's, that's available to us if we want it. It can be, right? How, how many people do you know in your life who've, who've left a church that preached the Bible well to join a church that didn't but was more comfortable? Isn't it a grief? Be careful who you listen to. Understand, I'm not saying big church bad. I'm saying sincere church good. There are teachers in this world who will lead you away from God. In, in the days of Jesus, it was people who would take the burden of the law and they would smash it on your shoulders and say, you can't approach God until you're perfect. And you'll never be perfect. And that would keep the sincere away. In our day, we, we have those. They're not as free. I, don't, I haven't met too many of those. Met a lot of people who do the opposite thing. Jesus would never say anything that would potentially offend anyone, right? That's, that's, Aziz, we're so conflict-averse. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's what we want to hear, is that Jesus is friendly to everyone all the time. And, and like, it's okay when he sticks it to the powers that be. Aziz, we're okay with that, but... Like, what if the widow was in sin? Jesus would call her out too. Be careful who you listen to. Here's the next warning. Don't pretend. Do not pretend with our God. We must be careful not to be hypocrites ourselves. Which one am I? 
Like when, when, when we read this story, who are we meant to identify with? Part of the story surely should be us going, I hope I'm not the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the lawyers. There is a kind of danger which a soul can be in, which is hard to see when you're in it. This is, the, this is the peril and the tragedy of these false teachers. It could lead us as human beings to reject our God in order to pres- preserve our religion. Could you imagine? How do you get there? Follow these simple steps. Value prestige or tradition or control more than you value God himself. Value religious symbolism over what the symbols are meant to represent. I would like to get baptized, and then I'm going to go out drinking with my buddies about an hour later. Right? Do you feel it? Doesn't, doesn't work. At some point, stop repenting and being teachable. Do you realize, like, the whole of the Christian life is, is, is me discovering how much more I need that grace, and that grace becoming all the more sweeter because of it? Each day, God is going to show me something about me that he needs to put to death and revive and make beautiful. And if I see the end of that process from the beginning, that process is beautiful. But if I, if I lose sight of that, it's just the immediate pain of being contradicted. And you can, you can harden yourself to that problem for long enough that you become unteachable. It's, it's like pride and insecurity like this. <laughs> what a terrifying spiritual state to be in. Here's a good one to do. Replace genuine gospel community. Joining a church, committing to a church, being involved in the lives of the people of your church, and letting them into your personal business. That last part matters. Right? We, we, we have a substitute for fellowship. It's called polite distance. You will never get in trouble for that. But you will never be known, and you will be very lonely. Stop serving in humble ways. Mike, I'm mean, I mean, Jimmy, I'm a gifted teacher. And you know what's happening while I'm here this morning? My small group is cleaning the toilets at church. <laughs> I planned it for Sunday. and didn't tell them until today that I wasn't coming. <laughs> Fortunately, that was an accident. <laughs> but there's a trap there, isn't there? I mean, I've been on this worship team for so long now, why would I, why would I go visiting the widows? It's, it's an easy trap. Lastly, the thing that we need to hear is a very big invitation. Jesus is calling us to be true worshippers. Even with this, like, how do we get our heads around this? Even with everything that they were doing wrong, even with the fact that they would eventually plot to kill him and by his own decision succeed, even though they, they hated him despite all of the grace that they had been shown, if they would turn, Jesus would heal them. There is not a single sin in these Pharisees which is beyond the grace of God if they were to repent. Like, doesn't it, this makes the scene in Luke make so much more sense, doesn't it? In Luke 13, when, when Jesus rocks up over the, the city of Jerusalem, he's kind of looking at the whole city from a hill near to the crucifixion, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? You know who is willing? The Lord God Almighty. 
There is, there is no one, no religious false leader, no insincere church attender, no um, foolish sinner whose sins put them beyond the reach of God's grace were they to turn and receive it. Had they known what was on offer and asked him, he would have given them the living water. And he still will. Because if, if you are sitting here today and you're like, you know what, my faith has got a lot more in common with the Sadducees and the Pharisees than it does with the widow. Jesus wants you. But there's, there's a reason he is saying these things. And it's not just to be proven right, it is to invite This is the Jesus who is on his way to the cross to save sinners. And he is willing and able and ready to save and forgive you. Let's pray to him. Our God and Father, We don't want to pretend. Pretending is easier. It's more popular. It's less offensive. It lets me hang on to my idols and act as if I've also got access to your grace. It's soul death. It's evil. I would think I was happy whilst being far from the one true source of happiness. Lord, their sin, I am capable of it without your mercy. And so I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, Lord God, that you did not look at the sin of this world and leave or destroy us but you have made a people for yourself who are called out from the world. And in the mercy of mercies, Lord, you have let me be a part of that people. Jesus, forgive my sin, I pray. Forgive my idolatry and my traditionalism and my ego, my desire to keep up appearances. Rescue me from slavery to pretending. I am so exhausted from worrying about what other people think of me when I worship you. And restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy of being free. The joy of being forgiven. The joy of being clean. The joy of being filled with your spirit and made alive and made new the joy of being secure in your grace, the joy of serving you out of gladness rather than duty and burden. You alone are worthy. You are better (laughs) than my worst insincerity. And we here today, Lord, we believe you, that you are right and we are wrong. Have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.